Uh, we were in Acts chapter 2. We were talking about the, 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 the great sermon by Peter, the first Christian sermon, you could say. And uh, in Acts chapter 2, we talked about the ascension of Christ. We've talked about Pentecost. And now in Acts 2, verses 14, all the way down through uh, verse 41, Peter gives explanation to what Pentecost is. And then he talks about what it means or what it takes or a present, presentation of the gospel. And that's what we want to talk about this morning, a presentation of the gospel. And it's really simple. It's really basic. Um, it is very clear what Peter does. He presents to us the most important thing, and that is what you do with Jesus Christ here on earth. And so what I want to do is we're going to cover a lot of ground uh, this morning as we, we endeavor to finish this uh, incredible sermon by Peter in Acts 2. Uh, we're going to look at verses 22 down to verse 41. What I want to do is just read to you kind of the last section here uh, of, of this incredible sermon that he gives. And I want to pray for us, and then we'll dive into what it has to say, all right? So look at Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 37, uh, all the way down to 41. Um, and let's read it together. It says this, Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's commit this uh, time of teaching to the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit for his help. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we get the word of God right in front of us. We're so thankful that, that you have even created for us and instituted for us the church to come together and assemble week after week after week. And we do that so that we can be reminded of who Christ is, what he's done on the cross, that we have forgiveness of sins, and that one day we will be raised to newness of life to live together with our Savior forever in heaven. And I pray, Lord, as we study these things this morning, this incredible sermon by Peter, that your spirit would take this knowledge that we learn and move it from our head into our hearts, because what we desire is transformation to become more like Jesus Christ. And to do that, we need the work of the spirit. So we pray for help this morning in Jesus name. Amen. Well, we looked at this, if we can go back all the way before Christmas, we looked at Pentecost. Remember what Pentecost was? Pentecost is 50 days after the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ, 10 days after the ascension of Jesus Christ. There was this incredible redemptive uh, moment where the Holy Spirit came down upon the believers. There was 120 believers uh, during that time. It is this this time where God moves from being uh, beside them or with them to God being within them, the believers, permanently. Uh, this is a new age. 
uh, a new time, the Messianic age, uh, has arrived. And in that time of the Messiah coming, he would ascend into heaven, and then the Holy Spirit would come down upon them. And that came with a lot of interesting events that happened during that time. There was, uh, in, during that time, there was tongues of fire. Uh, there was the, uh, the sound of wind or like hurricane-like sound that came upon them. Uh, during that time, there was the speaking uh, in tongues, which we learned about. The speaking in tongues was uh, these unknown languages that became known to those who were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were able to speak in, this, in these languages that would be used to fulfill uh, Acts 1.8, which is to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. When all of that happened, and you can read that for yourself again if you'd like, in Acts 2 all the way down to verse 13, when all of that was taking place, in verse 12 it says that all were amazed and perplexed, which I think we would all have been both of those things at the same time. This is amazing, but at the same time, I kind of wonder what's actually going on right now. And so they asked the question in verse 12, what does this mean? What does it mean that all these things and all these events are happening right now? And, and one of the conclusions that they wrongly come to is this, is they say that these people are filled with new wine, they are drunk. And so what happens is, is that Peter stands up amongst all the, uh, the apostles that are there, the 11 disciples that are there, 11 apostles that are there with him. He stands up and he now explains to them the events that happened at Pentecost and then he gives to them in verse 22, all the way down to the end of the chapter, what they need to do about this. And we looked at this last time. Of the three aspects of Peter's sermon, we looked at last time that Peter, in giving this address, is number one, he is boldly biblical. Peter doesn't just stand up there and say, hey, I got a couple ideas here of what might be taking place right now with his whole uh, tongues of fire, the whole wind thing, the whole speaking in tongues. I got a few ideas. Let me just, let me just kind of spitball a few of them at you right now. No, Peter stands up and he answers the question because they ask it, what does this mean? And what Peter does is he goes straight to the word of God for the answer. He goes straight to the Old Testament. He goes, he goes straight to the prophet, prophet Joel, and he gives explanation as to what was happening during this time. He's boldly biblical. And he says to them, as it says there in verse 15, he, he, he says to them, this was uttered through the prophet Joel. It wasn't fulfilled in, uh, uh, entirely by, uh, by the events that were happening right there, but this is uh, what was said by Joel. These events were starting to unfold, and, and all these things are starting to take place. And, and namely this, it says, that I will pour out my spirit. I will pour out my spirit. The, the Holy Spirit would come in this new era, this new dispensation where the Holy Spirit would now reside within us, where God would be within us, permanent dwelling within the believer. This is the sign then of this new age of the Holy Spirit, which would be by the time we get to the end of the chapter, which would be uh, the, the age of the church. All of that would have started during this time in the birth of the church. He goes down and he says that there will be wonders in heaven. There will be uh, even this, this uh, day of the Lord, this great and magnificent day of the Lord that, that would come, meaning this, that, that the, the sign of the Holy Spirit coming upon them means that this is the beginning of the end when Jesus would come back and rapture his people. All of that is explained by Peter as he is 
boldly biblical in, in saying this is the truth. And then he says this in verse 21, that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The way that you are saved from the judgment that is to come, this great and, and magnificent day of the Lord where the wrath of God will be poured out upon those who do not believe, the way that you are saved from that day is that, that you call upon the name of the Lord. Peter understands this. For us to understand what is going on in our time, we must go back to where the truth is found. And the truth is found in the word of God. And he gives explanation. And you can say this, if you're kind of bracketing the sermon, you can say verses 14 to 21, Peter explains Pentecost. But he doesn't leave it there. Peter captures the moment and in verse 22, he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty signs and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He now transitions into this sermon becoming Christ-centered. It moves now into a, an explanation of who Jesus Christ is and who the Messiah is. And, and, and actually, if you keep reading, and we will as we get to it, all the way down through verse 36, all of it is about Jesus Christ. He's not just boldly biblical in explaining the, the Old Testament. He now turns and says this, you must do something with Jesus Christ. It's a Christ-centered sermon. It's a Christ-focused sermon. He gives us the answer, and the answer is this, is that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the one who can forgive you of your sins. He places the emphasis right where it belongs. It belongs on Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, I believe that those sermons which are fullest of Christ are the most likely to be blessed to the conversion of the hearers. Let your sermons be full of Christ from beginning to end, crammed full of the gospel. As for myself, brethren, I cannot preach anything else but Christ and his cross. For I know nothing else. And long ago, like the apostle Paul, I determined not to know anything else save Jesus Christ except him crucified. People have often asked me, what is the secret of your success? I always answer that. I have no other success than this, that I have preached the gospel, not about the gospel, but the gospel, the full, free, glorious gospel of the living Christ, who is the incarnation of the good news. Preach Jesus Christ, brethren, always and everywhere. And this is exactly what Peter does. 
Peter has this captive audience. Imagine the illustration that he has already built in for him. Tongues of fire on people's head. Speaking in tongues. I mean, he has a captive audience, maybe the most captive audience that there ever been. And Peter stands up and he makes sure of this, that his message is filled with the gospel. He was not going to miss out on this opportunity. They needed to know what happened to Jesus Christ. So he says, look at verse 22. He begins to describe Jesus. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. He already said something similar to this in verse 14 when he grabbed their attention the first time. He says, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. And now he says this, men of Israel, hear these words. And then he describes Jesus. Let me give you the first description. We'll move through these quickly. Number one is this. We see Jesus' humanity. What does he say first? Jesus of what? Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. What is he saying? He's saying that Jesus is 100% human. 100% that he came from a town of Nazareth, born from Bethlehem. Jesus uh, was 100% man. He, was, he came through normal childbirth. We just, we just celebrated this not too long ago. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of Mary. 100% man, 100% God. He starts to, to help us understand and help the Jews understand that this is the Messiah, that he, that he had a mother and a father, that you guys even knew this. You can go back into the Gospels, you can see uh, a number of times where they go, isn't this Jesus? Isn't this, uh, uh, isn't Jesus' father Joseph? Isn't he from Mary? I mean, he was just a normal boy. He was Jesus of Nazareth. Then he goes on, Peter goes on in his explanation of who Jesus is. He says, this is a man, look at verse 22, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. And now we see this, we see Jesus's power. It says this, that, that Jesus did mighty works, he did, he did mighty wonders, and he did signs, and he did, he did all these miracles, and we know these miracles from the gospel where, where we read that Jesus fed 5,000, that, that Jesus walked on water, that, that Jesus gave sight to the blind. We know that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and he's saying, you guys know these things. You witnessed these things. You saw these things. You've heard the stories about these things. And Jesus did all these signs and miracles, as it says, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders that, and signs what? That God did through him in the midst that, that all of these affirm that Jesus is the Messiah. That was the whole point of all the signs and miracles that happened. In fact, the very first one, and when you turn water into wine at the wedding in John 2.11, it says this, this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. It is, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. The purpose of the sign to reveal his glory. In John 20, the whole purpose of, of the book of John 
In verse 30 and 31, it says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so what Peter does is he goes back to, to these signs and these miracles that, that Jesus has done, that, that God did through him in their midst. You yourselves know who this Jesus is. And the life of Jesus and, and all these signs and miracles, they were proof that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And it validated all of his words. And third is this. Look at verse 23. We see his power. We see his humanity. And then third, we see his death. The death of Jesus. It says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter says this, that that Jesus was killed according to the definite and perfect plan of God. Every single detail of the death of Jesus Christ was planned out by God. He knew that it was going to happen. He planned it out. You could look it out in the Old Testament, Old Testament prophecy, all the different times where, where all of it was continually fulfilled at the death of Jesus Christ. This was the perfect plan of God. This didn't happen just randomly out of nowhere and it even caught Jesus by surprise. No, this was a definite plan of God. It was, the, even as it says there, it was, it was delivered up according to that definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Yet at the same time, while it was planned by God and, and ordained by God, at the same time, man is still responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. Because he goes on and he says in verse 23, you crucified and killed him by the hands of, of lawless men. While God understood and while God knew and God, while God planned these things to happen, it was still sinful man that crucified Jesus Christ. Sinful man Guilty of killing innocent Jesus, sinless, perfect Jesus. Sinful man murdering Jesus. Just imagine standing there as, as, a, as, as a Jew listening to what Peter is saying and, and he comes to this and they're all saying, yeah, we know this Jesus. Yeah, yeah, we know him. Yeah, the, the sign. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're right on board. You killed him. Wait, what? Wait. I'm responsible for that? You remember what Pilate said when he was, he was asking Jesus, what is the truth? What is the truth? And Pilate, Pilate stands there and he goes out on the balcony. He says, hey guys, I find no guilt in this man. Why do you want to kill him and let the criminal go free? And Peter stands up and he gives explanation to this and he says to them, look, uh, even though it was according to the plan of God that Jesus would die, you are still responsible for his death. You crucified him. You killed him by the hands of lawless men. 
But Peter doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Fourthly, we look at this then, Jesus' resurrection. It says, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it is not possible for him to be held by it. The Jews put him to death, responsible for killing the Messiah. Verse 24, though, says what? God raised him up. God raised him up. The greatest validation that Jesus is the Messiah is his resurrection. The resurrection validates all that Jesus did, validates all that Jesus said. All the signs, all the miracles, all the hard sayings of Jesus are validated at the resurrection. Tim Keller says this, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether, whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And this is the reality, and this is what the Jews needed to understand is as Peter was saying these things, if, if Jesus does not rise from the grave, then he is not the Messiah. If Jesus does not rise from the grave, then he certainly is no Savior. If Jesus doesn't rise from the grave, then he doesn't conquer sin. He doesn't conquer death. And if he cannot conquer death, then he cannot raise you to newness of life. But it says there what? That, that God raised him up, that, uh, that, that there would be no way that death would hold down Jesus. It says that he loosened the pangs of death. Hebrews 2, 4, 14 says this, that, that through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. This is why, church, the, the resurrection is so important. This is why we must believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because if Jesus is still in the, gate, uh, in the grave, then everything that we are doing and living for is worthless. In fact, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul said. He said, he said that, that, that we are the most to be pitied if Jesus is still in the grave. Satan's not defeated. Sin is not defeated. Death is not defeated. If Jesus is still in the grave, he's not the Messiah. He's not the Savior of the world. But you know what? Jesus is not in the grave. Why? Because God raised him to life. And Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what does it say? You will be saved. With the heart one justified and believed and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I read a, a tragic, really tragic stat about the resurrection. This is what it said. It said this, one in four Christians believe that Jesus did not 
rise from the dead physically. One in four, 25% profess that Jesus never rose from the grave. Can I tell you something? You cannot believe that Jesus did not rise from the grave and be a Christian. You can't believe that. I just read the verse. If you confess with your mouth and, uh, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead. It's impossible to say that Jesus is dead, yet he is the Savior of the world. Because think about it. If God cannot raise Christ from the dead, he certainly cannot raise you from the dead, and why would he? That's why John, chapter 11, verse 24, says this. I, Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me, what? Shall never die. And then he says this, do you believe this? The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 6, 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Everything hinges on the resurrection, and Peter knows this. Peter knows this. In fact, he spends the next eight verses talking about the resurrection. He spends one verse on one phrase on his humanity, one verse uh, on his works, one verse on his death, and then he spends eight verses on the resurrection. You think the resurrection is important? It's very important. In fact, you can even look into the book of Acts and see all these pivotal messages that are written all throughout the book of Acts, and it really becomes a theme in the book of Acts. Not only here is Peter's sermon on Pentecost about the resurrection. His second sermon in Acts 3.15 is about the resurrection. When Peter defends himself before the Sanhedrin, it's about the resurrection. In Acts 4, the apostles' preaching is about the resurrection. Peter's defense in his second arraignment in Acts 5 is about the resurrection. When he preaches to Cornelius, it's about the resurrection. When he preaches in Antioch, it's about the resurrection. When he preaches in Athens, it's about the resurrection. When he preaches in Jerusalem, it's about the resurrection. When he, when he preaches to Felix, it's about the resurrection. And to Festus and Agrippa, it's all about the resurrection. The entire book is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And thanks be to God that he raised Jesus up. He goes on and he says this, as Peter does in our first point, he's boldly biblical. So what does he have to do? He goes back and he says, not only am I saying this, but this is even goes all the way back to David. David even started saying this in the Old Testament. We go all the way back to Psalm 16 and we, we see here in verse 25, he says, David says this, I saw the Lord always before me. He was at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. All eyes on verse 29. Brothers, may I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried 
and his tomb is with us to this day. What is he saying? David's not the Messiah. David is still in his grave. David did not rise again from the grave. And he goes back to this, this psalm here, and, and the Lord here is speaking, prophetic psalm here. The Lord here is speaking of his, of his resurrection through this psalm. And he comes down and he says, David is not at the right hand of the Father. David was letting us know that the Messiah would come. David was letting us know that, that Jesus would, would come and that he would establish his kingdom here on earth. And the Jews would begin to start processing all these things. Look at verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. What is he talking about? He's talking about this Jesus. Verse 31. He foresaw and spoke about what? The resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades. Nor did his flesh see corruption. Verse 32. This Jesus, what, raised up, and what, and of that we are witnesses. The resurrection, by the time this event happened, was how far back was it? How far back are we talking? 50 days, right? We're not talking about, hey, this happened years ago. No, for these, they were witnesses. They knew it was only 50 days ago that Jesus had risen from the grave. And he says, it's not David, the one that they, they had exalted themselves. It's not him. It, it's this Jesus, the Messiah, of which you all know who this is. He goes on. Before, therefore, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You're seeing this. You're hearing this. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord sit at my, uh, said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make you enemies, your foothold. Brings us to number five then. It starts with the humanity of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, and it ends with the exaltation of Christ. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. David's not at the right hand of God. The Old Testament prophets are not at the right hand of God. John the Baptist is not at the right hand of God. But Jesus the Messiah is. And he goes back and he defends it again with Old Testament scripture in Psalm 110. And he says, the Lord said, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What is he saying? He's saying this. If you do not believe in the Messiah, then he has crafted you into a footstool of which he places his foot on. He is saying this, that judgment is for those who do not believe that he is the Lord of all. And this is the ultimate answer. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that we give our life to. He is the one that we serve. He is the one we love, the sacrifice. He is the one that we follow. He is the one that we obey. He is the Lord. And he, so he says in verse 36, you can kind of say this is kind of a summary statement of, of all of this. He says in verse 36, that all of the house of Israel therefore know what? For certain what? That God has made him both Lord and Christ 
Who are we talking about? This Jesus whom you crucify. Guilty for rejecting and crucifying the Messiah. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. Their guilt was powerful. Now think about this. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? John 16, 8 says this, that the work of the Holy Spirit is to what? To convict sin. All right, this is the first instance where we see the work of the Holy Spirit take place. They were convicted of their sin. This is why they were cut to the heart. They recognized this, that they were guilty of rejection of the Messiah. Let me pull back just for a second here. As we, in our desire to fulfill Acts 1.8, which is to be a witness in all of Jerusalem and Judea to the end of the world, as you desire to be a witness for Christ to your family, to your friends, to your coworkers, and you're presenting the gospel, there has to be a recognition of sin before someone can be saved. You have to recognize that, hey, I am a sinner, And I need salvation. So as you're presenting the gospel, it's not just, hey, here's just a bunch of fun facts about who Jesus is. What do you guys think? Huh? Sound good? Well, why in the world do I need Jesus? This is what Peter does. He walks down the line and says, you need Jesus because you rejected and killed the Messiah. You are not on God's side. In fact, you are his enemy." Judgment is coming upon you unless you embrace Jesus Christ as your your Lord and Savior and you're getting people to the point where they they recognize that their their only way of salvation is through Jesus Christ. And that only can happen one way, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You ever had those moments in conversation where you're with somebody and you're just like, man, I just presented the gospel so good and it was clear and it was crisp. And I was like, yeah, they're going to come to know Jesus right now in this conversation because I'm so good at sharing the gospel. And they're just looking at you like, what? No, I don't need that. Why? I'm fine. We're doing good. Really? Do you not know what you said about you're separated from God and sin and salvation and, and you're just going to say you're good? This is why, church, we, we pray every Sunday for the help of the Holy Spirit. We need the work of the Spirit to what? To convict sin. And this is what happened here is they, they heard all these things about who Jesus was and who Jesus is, and they came to the end, and they recognized this, that they were cut to the heart, they were guilty, and then they say this, brothers, look at verse 37, what do we do? What do we do now? Remember, it started out with this question. What does this mean? And now it moves to what? What do we do? Here's what you do. Here's what you do with your sin. What does it say? Look at verse 38. Peter says to them, here's what you do. All of you, you need to repent. You need to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins and what? And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit 
Who receives the gift of the Holy Spirit? Those who repent of their sins, those who have the forgiveness of sins. What does it mean to repent? It means this, to turn and do a 180 degree turn from your your lifestyle of sin that you're living in. And now you turn and you run to God and you now live for God. And we see now then this third aspect of the sermon, which is this courageous call of Peter. Peter doesn't stop after giving all this information about who Jesus is and says, you know what, guys, have a great day. You know what? Here's Jesus. Have a great day. Go off and just live your life. So I hope, I hope that was helpful kind of with some of the understanding here about the, the, these kind of events that were, that were taking on uh, that happened here in Pentecost. I, I hope that was helpful. Have a great day. No. What does he do? He calls them to repentance. Why? Because it's in repentance that you have the forgiveness of sin. It's a courageous call. And again, when we're communicating and evangelizing Christ, we want to bring people to the point of making a decision. What do you think about this? What is keeping you back from, 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 from living for Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul said this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. It's a courageous call. And he says you must repent. There is no forgiveness of sin without repentance. Now notice here too, it says this. It says repent and what? Be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Why would Peter say repent and be, be baptized? Why, why was it so important that Peter would would add baptism in there. We know this, that baptism does not save. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. Baptism, if it was, would be a work. And there is no work that we do that can accomplish salvation. So why would Peter say to repent and be baptized? Well, this word here for baptized, it means the, to be immersed. And this time he's talking about uh, being, being immersed, not in the Holy Spirit, but this time in water. When you repent of your sin, this is the inward change of the heart. Baptism, then, is the outward manifestation of the inward change. One is about salvation. The other is symbolic. John Stott says this, What the gospel demands is a radical turn from sin to Christ, which takes the form inwardly of repentance and faith, and outwardly of baptism for submission to baptism in the name of Christ, here it is, gives public evidence of contrite faith in him. So you get baptized, what? To let the world know outwardly what was going on inwardly at your conversion. You're saying to the world, I identify with Christ and I identify with this local family, this local body of Christ. I'm not ashamed of it. I want the world to know that I identify with Christ. Outward manifestation of the inward change. And Peter here says, you need to repent and be baptized. You need to let the world know what's happening inside your heart. You need to do it. Every one of you, it says there, what? In the name of Jesus Christ, what's the result of that? The result of that is this, the forgiveness of sins. The result of that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. It will be given to you. The Holy Spirit is manifest in you. You want to let the world know. 
that you are not ashamed of the gospel. Now remember this. There was actually a cost to these Jews for being baptized. There's no cost for us to be baptized, for most of us. There was a cost for the Jews, though. They get kicked out of the temple. They get kicked out of the synagogues. So Peter was saying, you need to repent and be baptized. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off. Who, what does that mean, to be far off? Those who are away from God. Who was away from God? The Jews were certainly away from God. He said this promise is for those, anybody who is far off, away from God. And everyone, look what it says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. But here we see the sovereignty of God in salvation mixed with the respo- responsibility of mankind to still to repent. And these two always, always rub one another all throughout Scripture. The responsibility of man to repent, yet there is the sovereignty of God in salvation. Verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying this, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. What's the response of Jesus Christ? It's that we would repent, believe, that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. Listen, here's the reality, church. There is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. You are either in the family of God because you've repented of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ, or you are outside the family of God and you are still far off, dead in your trespasses and sin. And Peter, with great urgency, is calling us to repent and believe. Repent and believe. It is there that we find the forgiveness of sins. 3,000 souls were added that day. 3,000 souls were baptized that day. And then in verse 42, we find at the end of this chapter, which is the birth of the church. So next week, we realize this. You ready for this? Here's my teaser for next week. There are no maverick Christians. There are no Christians who get to live this life apart from the local church. 3,000 of them said, guys, we got to get together. I just abandoned my family. We better get together. We better do something. What are we going to do? We're going to fellowship together. We're going to study God's word together. We're going to take communion together. We're going to do all these things together so that we can go out and fulfill the Great Commission. And the birth of the church would take place. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I I realize this even standing up here. Man, that's just a lot of information. A lot to process, a lot to take in. I'm just thinking about the, the time that the Jews would hear this for the first time, just Peter boldly standing up, explaining what's happening, pointing people to Christ, reminding them, that he is the Messiah, he is the Lord of all, the creator of heaven and earth, and that we're responsible, our sin. Put Christ on the cross, 
yet he died for us, taking on the punishment, taking on the full wrath of God. And, and the courageous call of Peter was that these Jews would all repent, young or old, they'd repent and be baptized, identifying themselves as Christians. Lord, I pray there's anybody here who has not confessed Jesus as Lord, who has not repented of their sins, that today would be the day of salvation. And if there's any, for the rest of us who, who have believed in Jesus, that we'd be reminded of this great and glorious truth that you are a wonderful Savior, that you will raise us up, resurrect our bodies, and we will live forever with you in eternity. You have the power to do that. You raised up Jesus Christ, and those who believe in him will also be raised. What a glorious truth. Lord, keep that on our hearts and minds this week, who you are and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.